Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter. Today's episode is on orthopedic artificial joint replacements with a really illustrious guest, and I'll get into that in a, in a second. Special guest to me because he made me really in good shape. So we'll we'll get to that in a second here. We've got a great crew that helps us do these shows and make us successful. Over a year, a little over a year, we've been doing it. We have a great research crew. Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins, Deonda Howard do our background research on all of our great episodes. Our production guru manager is Matthew Campbell and make sure everything is crystal clear for you, our listening audience. And our marketing specialist is Sheridan Nygaard, helps us get everything out there to all you people in creative ways. So stay tuned on that. There's going to be some exciting things coming up on that. My co-host, colleague, friend, you name it, is uh, Clarence Jones. And this has been a really fun engagement. We keep chatting away, and every you know. I think I might have mentioned in another show that you know people say, "Well, what happens when you run out of topics?" And believe me, that's not been a problem. <laughs> there are a lot of topics in in the healthcare arena, and we've covered many of them, and we have many to go. So, Clarence, as always, great, great to be with you. Then there's. Our sponsor is Human Partnership, which is a community organization in the community that uh, is involved in a lot of health issues. And they really are a great organization. I recommend that you guys check our website um, and click on their site to see all the creative things that they do for many, many people in our community here. So thank you to Human Partnership. With that, we're going to move into Bones. How's that? <laughs> Orthopedic artificial uh, re replacement, joint replacement. And I want to introduce to everybody really a, a, a special person in my life. And, it's, and we've known each other quite a long time already. And um, intimately, at least my knees know you intimately. <laughs> and uh, it's Dr. David Fisher who graduated from the University of Minnesota Medical School in 1971. He's now retired, but he was he's very instrumental, one of the founders of TRIA Orthopedic here in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul area. He was for many years, I don't know how many years, but you'll, you can clear, how many years were you the, the team physician, orthopedic physician for the Vikings? Uh, 20, 20, 26 years. Wow, 26 years. Also, you were on the Olympic committee too, the Olympic team physicians, if I remember right. So it's, it's great um, to have you. And um, many, many thanks for, first of all, for making me mobile. Um, and and, it, and it's, it's been working very well so far. So thanks for being with us. So let's get this, this going. I'm gonna tell you guys a little bit of history on how I got in, involved in knee replacements myself, okay? Um, Dr. Fisher, you probably remember Dr. Ramon Castillo. Uh, and um, I remember going in to see him. This is prior to when I saw you. And uh, he was looking at one of my knees that was really problematic. And he said, you know, 
you need to see a colleague of mine, Dr. David Fisher, but you can't see him right now because if I remember right, you correct me if I'm wrong, you were over in England getting trained on a procedure called arthroscopy. And I, and I was one of your first patients here having arthroscopy on, on my knee to try to straighten out some meniscus cartilage problems. And we had a couple of them on both knees that were, that were done. And then eventually it led to, um, to knee replacement. But, um, and I'll get into that as well, but it's been really good. It, uh, they're very mobile. It's a new normal. I wouldn't say it's the same thing that I had before, but it certainly is. Uh, it's treated me very well going um, forward. So let, let's talk about this a little bit here. All right. So first of all, um, are we seeing, Dr. Fisher, are we seeing, at least from your practice, are we seeing more people that are presenting themselves for orthopedic-related issues that at least in your professional opinion, have led to replacements, whether it be knees or, or hips or, or what have you. Did, over the course of your practice, did you see it increasing? That's a, that's a good question, Stan. I, you know, it's, kind of, it's hard to say whether the incidence of these things is increasing. Yeah, what changed over the over the course of your treatment and, and my career. Yeah, is is the choices that we have for treating them. So it's not. I mean, I remember my father had a terrible knee, and you know it was just something you adjusted your life to. And yeah, and uh, you know we've been able to treat people whether it's arthroscopy in their younger years. You know, and I might mention to everybody that you had you had one of the most rare and unusual conditions I've ever seen in the knee. In fact, uh, and it was so early in my career that I, I it kind of dumbfounded me at the time. But in yeah. fact, I've only seen it in two patients in my whole career. And we actually wrote you up, you know, and yeah, published, I know. published yeah. Uh, that, that congenital condition that you had. But getting back to your, getting back to your question, it's possible that the increasing activity level that we're seeing in use. You know, there's more and more kids that are starting in organized programs and in the they're they're single specialty kids, you know, they're they're competing and in, in in stressing their bodies at a much higher level in earlier years. More yeah. of them. So there are more patients and and there's better treatment. And it's all led to a uh a condition where we've stretched the indications for it. When, you know, 30 years ago, the indications to do a knee replacement were quite a bit different than they are today. We just didn't have the, the techniques. We didn't have the implants. We didn't have the confidence. And so uh, the whole spectrum of, of application of joint replacement has definitely increased. Yeah. So, um, all right, so for, for our listening audience, you know, the, the condition I had, you know, thanks mom and dad or whoever, um, was, you know, most, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the meniscus on either side of your knees is, is, is C-shaped. It's shaped, pretty much shaped like a C. For me, it was shaped like a disc. 
on, on, on the inside of both of my knees, which was very, very unusual. It caused me problems. And eventually we had to do, if you remember where we had to do arthroscopy to try to reshape it into some kind of a normal shape and all this kind of stuff. Um, and eventually it, it, it led to bone on bone, okay? Which is typical to when the pain really, really starts. So let, let's talk about arthroscopy, first of all, because that, frankly, is it was a relatively new procedure, you know, and, and obviously they're using scope procedures for a variety of different things now. But talk to me about, about arthroscopy, whether it's of the knee or the hip or what have you. Well, that was a, that was a remarkable invention, and it was invented uh, by a British uh, professor, actually, not a surgeon, but a professor. Mm -hmm. And and it was the application of fiber optics, and what fiber optics allowed us to do was to both shine light through it as well as see through it. So we could not only put a light inside a, a joint, but we could actually see through the same small bore uh, implement, and that changed the whole thing. And then when we could begin to see what was going on inside the, the knee or the hip or the shoulder or just about any area of the body now, in orthopedics, we could figure out how to treat it if we could see it. And, and you know, that's, a, that's an element of any kind of surgery, whether it's orthopedics or general surgery or heart surgery, is that the first thing you have to be able to do is you have to be able to see what's wrong. If yeah. you can see what's wrong, you can figure out a way to treat it. And the, the arthroscope in, had a great application in orthopedics, but but my goodness, it's probably had a broader application in other areas of medicine. You know, gallbladders and appendixes and all these things now are are for the most part handled the same way with a yeah. few little incisions and and uh, small tools. It's been a remarkable invention because it's basically allowed us to see what's what's going on inside inside a joint and it also is less invasive yes. for sure and um and also the advantage for the for the patient is recovery is quicker when you, very, when you think about it very good very yeah, good re recovery yeah. i mean a you know gall a gallbladder is a good example of general surgery where that used to be that used to be a tough operation. You were in the hospital for days. You had this big incision in your ab. Well, that's another one. That's an outpatient procedure today. Yeah, it's it's just it's like a, a lot of other things. Yeah, Clarence, Doctor Fisher, I'd like to ask you this question. Okay, why do people? I want you to tell us why. What are some of the excuses people have given you for waiting so long to get their knees replaced? The reason I ask that question. <laughs> is because uh, uh, I had to get my knees replaced and I stood the pain for years. I used to I used to be in my bed and cry at night uh, because the pain was so <laughs> excruciating. But I never understood the psychological whatever it, it took for, uh, for me to go to the doctor. Why do people wait so long to get their ah. knees replaced? Well, I, not everybody does, Clarence. <laughs> No, now that might have something to do with you. You you, you, <laughs> might, you might put up with these things longer than, than a lot of people do. Okay. But but I think 
I think sometimes you feel like, well, it's going to get better. It, maybe it'll, maybe, maybe somehow things are going to get better. But, but what you mentioned is often the, the, the key. And when people start having pain at night and they start losing sleep and it starts interfering with their whole life, I mean, they're fatigued the next, it starts, a lot of times that's the last straw. That brings people into the office and they say, well, it, you know, the aspirin or the Tylenol or the ibuprofen, it, it's not helping anymore. And I just, I just generally feel awful and my knee's killing me. It's funny. I, I I see people walking around and and they know that they have they need a knee replacement and they just you know they they, do, they, they like like that little duck you talked about. They walk yeah. around like that little duck, you know. But they <laughs> yeah. but they will not go see uh, get that knee replaced. And so I, I thought it, it's very very interesting that that people. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how they view knee replacements, but. Uh, it's very interesting to see I've in my life to see the, the the pain that people have have put up with in order to not get their knees replaced. Well, it's it's the unknown too. In that, in that, whether it's a, whether it's a medical condition or a social condition, sometimes you could be in a bad situation, but you know what it's going to be like. And the in the the unknown is more of a detriment to making a decision in, at that point. And, and I think it's it's scary, you know, when you think about going into surgery and maybe under an anesthetic where you lose total control, your life is in somebody else's hands completely. Uh, and uh, everybody knows somebody that's done really, really well, you know, from church or something, you know, they tell you, well, I had this operation done. And I was playing tennis in two weeks. Well, that's a lie, you know, but, but, but that's <laughs> they weren't playing very well. <laughs> no, that's what their memory does to them. But then, you know, if you go into rehab and I'm sure Stan has seen this, you go in to talk to you and you see a rehab, you see some people don't do very well and they yeah. struggle. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so the expectations are, you know, we can't say this is what's going to happen a hundred percent of the time. And, and thank goodness it happens most of the time, but you know, there's a fair amount of anxiety with, with any surgery, I think. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I can reflect on that a little bit too, Clarence. So I had my first, first knee done by, by Dr. Fisher, and, um, and there was some apprehension. I mean, you know, it's just like, wait a minute now. You're going to take this knee that's in there, cut that sucker out of there, and put a new one in there, God knows how, and, and then close me up and just hope to God I'm going to be okay. Excuse me, wait a minute here a little bit. All right. But I did it. And the, and the reason why is, you know, per, per Dr. Fisher's note here, it's like, you know, you get to a certain point where, you know, you, you can only pop so many Advil, you know, like M&Ms before you just say enough is enough. Okay. Fast forward a little bit more. I think it was like three years later. Um, all of a sudden, I started feeling pain, that similar kind of pain in my other knee. So, okay, so guess who I went to see? And, um, you know, took pictures in the whole nine yards. And he said, I remember this distinctly. You said to me, uh, what do you want me to tell you, Stan? 
that you need your knee replaced, your other knee replaced. And I think I hesitated for like maybe five seconds. And, and I said, yes, I need you, you know, my trusted doc to tell me that I should proceed with this. And so you said, let's do it. And I said, done. Okay. So, but I did that quicker than I did my, my first knee. My first knee, you know, there's more apprehension behind it. The second knee, you know the procedure, you know kind of what you have to go through, you know the exercises, you know the PT, the whole nine yards. But it was, and we've had a show on this, Dr. Fisher, on trust with your with your medical um, people that you deal with. And um, you were one of my trusted docs. Whoa, these, whoa, the years. <laughs> Thank you. So, all right. So let, let, let's talk about this average age that you saw. Let's just talk about knee, knees and hips. What was pretty much the average age that you saw that people needed, you know, some kind of help? Well, these would all be, you know, for the most part, these were all seniors. You know, they, they were probably in their uh, 70s. You know, the, yeah. exception, the exception would be the, the less common patient that had some sort of a problem beginning much earlier in their life. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, but I, I would say they're all, they're all seniors, which, uh, which is a, you know, a bit of a concern as well, because they're all higher risks for surgical procedures and the, yeah. and the rehabilitation, all the things that go with a major operation. Yeah. Yeah. So seniors being what, like, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, that's pretty much. I would, I would say the majority were being their 70s probably. Yeah. 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 Actually, that's who I see, you know. Um, and by the way, this is a great little story. This happened three weeks ago. Now there was a, um, a Ukrainian Jewish woman who um, had her, her knee replaced. And I was seeing her in the course of our conversation, we realized that we were both Jewish. So she says to me, Stan, does chicken soup help? And I said, absolutely take chicken soup and you can even rub it on your knee. It, it's, it's, it's a remedy. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Okay. So let's talk about, um, the, the other kind of side treatments that typically go along with orthopedics, like, okay, so it's not necessarily a, um, a replacement or um, arthroscopy, for instance, but maybe what, like, you know, injections of all these different types that they're talking about today. Yeah, well, I think probably go through a series of, of uh, steps here. You know, it starts with, you know, we use physical therapy. We use medication, yeah. That then injections, and you you use them in kind of a serial way. And yeah, as they fail to provide relief, you go to the next step. And and they, you know, everything is time limited for the most part. And you know, unfortunately, the the worse the arthritis is, the the less predictable all of those other methods are. Yeah. And, uh, but for the most part, uh, you go through them. They do help people probably stretch a little more time uh, out of their knees, and and uh, and also the current uh, you know insurance situation, for example, uh, sometimes mandates that you know that 
before hmm. pa before patient is is eligible for a knee replacement, have they failed a course of physical therapy? Have they failed medication? You know, those are those are steps to maybe not postpone the inevitable, but but put it off at least satisfactorily. And, and it also serves the other purpose that I think when patients are ready for surgery, they understand that they've exhausted these other other Options. methods. That they they just haven't helped, and they're just a little more prepared for for an operation. Yeah. So you know, I remember um, second knee. I was in a hell of a lot of pain, and um, I guess the the typical amount of pain. But at any rate, we had, my wife and I had a trip planned. I don't know if you remember, recall this to Portugal. Oh, absolutely. Do you remember that? Oh. Anyway, I... and, and so you said to me, all right, Stan, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a shot of cortisone. That yeah. way you'll be able to have a good time when you're overseas in, in Portugal. You'll be able to walk around and blah, blah, blah. And then by the time you come back, will be able to to proceed but i i remember that distinctly and it was like a band-aid frankly it, yeah. you know it helped for sure but it was kind of inevitable well that was a that was a good indication for it i mean a trip to europe involves almost always a lot of walking that's yeah, just hiking, part of whatever a, yeah. part of a of a trip overseas and and uh yeah i mean I'm glad it helped, and, and I remember the trip very well. I mean, it's a it's a place we've Andrea and I have always wanted to see as well. We still haven't made that trip, but I've I, got yes. it, I got good good maps for you. So Clarence, you got <laughs> yeah. you got some more. Yeah. You just as you were talking, I remember I, I got a shot before I went to Africa, uh, wow. and that cortisone worked perfectly that first time, but the second and the third time it didn't it didn't oh, work no. at all. You know, but what I want to ask is this: is that what other kind of conditions lead to the need for knee replacement? I mean, what what medical condition? I mean, I, I think that for me, I had arthritis. Uh, but my, the way that I was walking around, uh, you know, on a concrete with you know little flat shoes and stuff like that didn't help much either. What 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 kind of conditions lead to the need for a knee replacement? Well, they're almost all some form of arthritis. Um, <clears throat> you know, the most common is just wear and tear. What we call degenerative arthritis. And the most common cause of that is, is probably an old injury of some sort, even an, even an injury that the patient doesn't remember or recognize. But over millions of cycles, that part of the knee just starts to wear out. And, and it's usually the inside half of the knee uh, that starts to wear out. And then as it starts to wear out, you know, you'll see people walking around like cowboys. You know, they start to get a <laughs> bow-legged. Well, that's kind of a nutcracker. You know, it just increases the pressure on the inside of the knee. It increases the wear. There's, there's always been some argument as to whether you can wear out a normal joint. And, uh, you know, you may not be able to wear out an absolutely normal joint. So people are either born with a malalignment of the joint, have an injury, or they have the these other what we call metabolic conditions, the various forms of, of uh, systemic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, these, these that, that affect not only your joints, uh, but other body organs uh, as well, not isolated to just the knee. But yeah, wear and tear, it's just like, just like your, 
transmission in your automobile, you know. Wears out. It wears out. Yeah. So so tell me, um, let's talk about knees, the knee, the replaced knees, et cetera. What are they made out of? And who designs these things? I mean, it's just like, what's in them? Yeah, well, uh, they're all they're all basically metal and plastic. And the metals that are used are alloys. There's only two alloys that are generally used in, in, in the joint replacement for the metal part. And it doesn't make any difference whether you're implant is made in Asia or Europe or Canada or the US. These are, these are accepted international alloys. And one is a chrome cobalt molybdenum alloy and the other is a titanium alloy. And they're used interchangeably, you know, some, uh, but they all have this, have a couple of, of common features that they don't rust out. They're compatible. They're compatible <laughs> in the in a saline solution like the body. So they're completely inert, and they're not rejected by the body. The other thing is that uh, a second thing is that they're available at a reasonable cost. They, they are they are elements that can be put into and milled and cast into shapes that that uh, are you know easy to do. And the third thing is they both can be very highly polished. They can they can be polished to a surface that doesn't create metas, you know, microscopic debris. And so those are the three metal three metal alloys, and there are three reasons or so for metal alloys. The plastic is also all the same. You know, it's a it's a polyethylene plastic. Mm -hmm. And now that's been improved over the years. That's changed, not the not the basic plastic itself, but it's been reinforced. The earlier forms of that plastic tended to wear, and they they created the microscopic debris in the joint over a long time, which caused inflammation in the joint and would cause these some of these components to loosen and, and need to be uh, need to be revised. But uh, the new the new uh, plastic is is good and that you know that was discovered by accident by John Charnley in in England uh Sir John Charnley back in the 50s he was orthopedic surgery in England interested in one of his interests was in joint replacement and he was testing things he couldn't find a couldn't find a frictionless bearing surface um and Somebody brought a piece of this plastic in and he put it in one of his machines, got up and looked at it a couple of days later and found out that the thing didn't wear. It didn't seem to be. And it was sort mm. of a fortuitous. Now it was, you know, accidents happen to people that have more than just luck. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it was an interest of his, but he recognized that immediately. And that changed that. That was a big change in joint replacement because now there was a, a bearing surface that was essentially friction-free or wouldn't wear. And so that just went from then. The design has always been a, 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 a uh, what do you want to say, a cooperative effort between industry and basic science, the engineers. It's been yeah. the engineers studying the joints, studying their motion in the laboratory, 
and then trying to mimic mimic that uh, uh, that function in the in the body. And that's changed over the years, but boy, over the past couple of decades, there there really hasn't been, you know, I'd say over the past 25 or 30 years, there there probably hasn't been any monumental, you know, changes. We still we still don't know, for example, as good as these joints are, how to put them into a professional athlete and have <laughs> and have yeah. them, you know, it's not. It's not the million dollar man yet, it, it, you know, and, and Stan, you mentioned it. I mean, they're, they're good. And they, they, they generally help a lot with the chief complaint, which is pain, but they are not normal. They're, they're not normal needs. Right. You know, so um, if, if you think about the, these, these, all right, so it, it's, it's artificial, there's, there's plastic and there's metal. What's the longevity? typically of a replaced knee so you know make me feel good here so i had you know mine done you know in my early 60s am i gonna is my knee out gonna live me or stay tuned i think well, it depends how long you live probably but <laughs> but yeah well that's but, a good point <laughs> golly i think the survival rate now has got to be well over 90 percent for at least 20 years yeah you know that's it's really good, you know. I, I think, uh, uh, and it's a combination of things, you know. I think that failures probably can be, you know, common failures like a like an infection or, you know, some problem generally occur earlier, you know, in the first few years. Hmm. And then we all realize this. I mean, if it's if it's done in a senior, that their activity, your activity level continues to slowly decrease a little bit. So. As time goes on, uh, you're putting less stress on it than you probably had in those first four or five years. So, yeah. So it's a combination of behavior as well as durability. They're they're really quite remarkable. So, Doctor Fish, I want to ask you a couple of questions. One is that um, a lot of people who don't understand or don't know about this, or they've been kind of thinking about it, how long? is the process for them getting, I mean, the surgery itself, uh, how long does it take? Uh, and then how long will they stay in the hospital? And then, uh, you know, you talked about the average, well, you talked about recovery time, somebody had two weeks of, uh, and they were back out there. But what's usually the average in terms of recovery uh, with when your knees get replaced? And I, and I guess recovery is kind of a an interesting word, you know, but uh, can you kind of work with us a little bit on that one? Sure. And and hips too. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, hips, hips and knees seem to be the, the things that are replaced the most that I see for sure. That's, that's right. The, the, uh, the surgery takes, I would say it generally in a fairly routine situation, probably up to an hour and a half. You know, it's probably that amount of time that that takes. Um, and we know now that that because of techniques and just patient education, uh, these are being done as an outpatient, uh, even today, in both the hip and the knee, in many patients. And, and uh, you know, some <laughs> patients that have been in the hospital afterwards might have a hard time believing this, that that you could actually just send people home a few hours after their operation. But it's becoming fairly common in 
in selected patients, but it's a combination of patient education, preparation, uh, adequate care at home, uh, lots lots of things, and uh, and there's also been a state, you know, a, toward, a, been a movement towards the uh, the uh, short stay, you know, which Tria really began in the yeah. Twin Cities, mm -hmm. which was putting patients in a hotel in, in Tria's case in the Hilton across the street, right, and providing the physical therapy and the in the uh, 24 hour nursing and everything in a hotel. And, and that helped a lot because we were still able to provide the medical aspect of their care, but the hospitality aspect uh, of being a patient was a lot better done by Hilton than by any, uh, <laughs> any hospital I know of. So that was that. Now, when it comes to recovery, the hip is generally faster. You know, the hip is a ball and socket joint. It's a stable joint. It's got all these big muscles around it. Uh, it's quicker. Uh, I used to tell patients that I thought they should, they should allow a minimum of six months to really start to feel like they made the right decisions sometimes. Uh, it takes that long to no normalize the gait. One of the problems in patients, particularly in the hip and, and the knee especially, is a bad gait pattern. You've been limping around for a long time. Sometimes you aren't even aware of how severe it is. And it, your, your brain is used to that gait. And it takes a long time sometimes to get back to a normal gait. In the case of the knee, that's being able to straighten your knee out all the way. Usually, as the knee gets stiff, it won't straighten out all the way. And if it doesn't straighten out all the way, you limp. And even after knee replacement, when the knee straightens out all the way on the operating table and everything else, the brain doesn't quite, you know, it's not a, it's not a switch that the brain can turn off. And so I think normalizing gait is what, what, is kind of the last, you know, once your gait gets normal, then you start to, I think, appreciate fully. Uh, but I, 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 I don't, you know, I don't expect a, a miracle in the, in the first few months. You know, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I can reflect on a question that I remember asking you, um, Dr. Fisher, back then, and then also what I've been sharing with um, some patients lately. Um, it's, it's typically how your brain interacts with your knee, okay, when it's, when it's had surgery on it, when your knee's had surgery on it. And I asked you, I said, how long will it be before I don't have to think about walking? In other words, you know, I can get up from a chair and just go without having to think or be careful or whatever. And I remember you telling me it can take up to a year for yeah. the brain to forget about your knee and then think about something else, you know? Yeah. And, and I remember it was about 10 months afterwards, I was in a restaurant with my wife and I actually, I got up and I started walking and wait, and I said, wait a minute, I didn't even think about this. This was great. You know, and that was at that, it was at that juncture where things were back to a semblance of normal again. The other thing is, um, and, and Clarence, you'll, you'll appreciate this too. It's like the recovery, um, you know, for, 
especially for some elderly patients, it's really um, what I have, I've been able to share with them. It's pain management. It's like, you know, staying ahead of the pain and understanding how to stay ahead of the pain, even when you're in the hospital or you're at the, you know, in a hotel situation, how is it that you know how to stay ahead of the pain as you're re recovering? And they really appreciate that insight, you know, in, in, in what to do. It's like, take some medication before you go to PT, you know, so you could do your exercises, those, those, those types of things. And that was the thing for me, Stan. I mean, that, you know, when I was going through my, my, um, my surgery, that's what you told me, stay ahead of the pain. And I like, stay ahead of it. Yeah. And that's what, I, and so now when I talk to people who are, um, going through the same experience, I just say, you know, stay ahead of the pain, you know, because there is some pain. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's really, uh, it's really, you know, I, like I said, this is really a, a great uh, conversation because I know that there are many people that I know, I'm, I'm coming from a community perspective, there are many people who are uh, struggling with this. They don't, there, there are various factors that are there. First of all, you know, you talked about the unknown, the uncertainty. Uh, then you talk about the insurance, what's the cost going to be. And you start talking about the economic impact of doing, you know, of having the surgery, you know, how long is it going to take for me to recover? You know, what about my job? You know, what about my family? What about my soul? I mean, so there's a variety of things that are going on in people's, I, I believe that are going on in people's mind about this. And so to be able to talk about this like this, you know, very casually and, and conversationally, I think it's going to be important for many people who might be considering this. And, you know, the, the, the outpatient, I mean, I kind of sort of knew that, but it's kind of great to have you say that, you know, that, you know, you go in, you know, and, uh, you know, you come back out and you can I'm like, what? You know, I medicine is a, is a, is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, I, you think, know, I, I, I was going to ask about professional athletes, too, but go ahead, Dr. Fisher. No, I, I think you both raise a, a, a good point. You know, pain, pain has always been been a concern in, in terms of how to manage it. And one thing we learned the hard way is that if we rely on these highly controlled medications to fight back pain once it gets bad, in other words, you know, asking a patient, well, rate your pain on a one to 10. 10, right. And we like, we like say, well, it's not an eight yet. You know, that doesn't work. That doesn't work because those, those high powered pain medications, which of course are really, really been subjected to restrict, you know, all kinds of yeah. restrictions. No, they're not just specific for pain. They have all kinds of other side effects and emotional effects. And we created a lot of trouble, you know, trying to medicate pain instead of getting in front of it, like, like you both talk with less pain medication, more frequently, I think, has been right. has been the key. Yeah. And stay in front of it. And better, you know, we 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 focused on the on the medical aspects of it, you know, the surgical aspects of it. And I think what's what has really helped in the last 10 or 15 years is is focusing on the patient expectations and and education edu education for the patient and what to expect that that you know you're going to have these things happen to you and preparing for them seems to help a lot too 
the, the, the actual requirements that patients generally have in studies now is they don't seem to need as much pain medication as they did. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the psychological aspects of just being better prepared for what you're going to experience, whether it's a whether it's physical or as Clarence mentions, whether it's concerns around your work or your your what is it, what is the whole impact of this procedure going to have on my life rather than just what is the impact of it on my knee? Yeah. And and we've learned a lot of things the hard way and still have a long ways to go, I think, but but we're better at it than than we were when I first started you doing know, that the- operation. You know, I, I remember distinctly, too, um, doing exercises, the appropriate exercises before surgery. It really, really helps, especially if you're, you're I could I can relate to knee. If you if you do exercise beforehand, it really gets your mind in that state in order to continue doing those after surgery. Plus, it also strengthens the, the you know, in the in this case, like the quadricep muscles beforehand in order to help take some of the pressure off of your knee beforehand. So it really, it's all a mindset. It's, it's establishing routines differently, the whole, the whole nine yards. So I want to talk about professional athletes a little bit. So I remember distinctly, especially with my second knee, that um, one of your colleagues came in to see me. You were at a Vikings game. You had already gone to a Vikings game that that day. It was a Sunday, and I was I was in the hospital, and um, your colleague came in to check in on me, and we were talking about Adrian Peterson, okay, who had a really really bad knee injury. So anyway, I forgot who your colleague was, but he said to me that this guy, professional athlete, is a a true freak of nature when it comes to recovery. I mean, he said, if it would take you Stan, you know, six months or whatever the heck it is to, to fully recover from a knee, Adrian Peterson could probably do it in a month. Okay. And I said, no way. <laughs> There's absolutely no way. <laughs> I don't have those kinds of genes in me. So let's talk. I mean, you had an incredible career dealing with orthopedic issues with professional athletes. Can you reflect on that at all? Whether it be you know the Vikings or in the Olympics or what have you? Yeah. Well, you know, I always I always referred to to my time around the professional athletes, whether it was basketball or football or Olympics, is working in a human performance laboratory. That, that <laughs> right. there were just a lot of things that you saw that you couldn't really explain. I mean, I could see some athletes with the worst looking feet and ankles in the world that could run like the wind. Uh, people like Adrian Peterson that didn't seem to get the inflammatory response. You know, if they got injured or surgery, they didn't get a big swollen, bloody looking thing. Their body just, you know, I hate to refer to it as, as, you know, some of the, we've we've, genetically through the years, you know, we we still have genetic underlying issues that we just don't understand you know that that why why do these why do these guys and and women too 
Why do they not seem to be as disabled from a injury that you and I are? You know, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I saw that all the time. And and uh, you know, they've got willpower, they've got motivation, they have all the other, of course, uh, elements that drive them. But at the same time, it's a natural selection process. Uh, and mm. and some of it is a natural selection process physically. Some of it's the natural selection process for some reason, emotionally or psychologically. But they're they're just interesting people to be around because you you, you see, it makes you a little more conservative. It made me a little more conservative as a surgeon. Often, I would say that in that yeah. in that uh, you, you just. Uh, couldn't explain it. It was it was an extraordinary experience. At the same time, a lot of the techniques and the investigations that were used in 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 these athletes became great benefit to ordinary patients. I mean that I'm sure that probably some of the rehabilitation uh, aspects of Adrian Pearson, uh, Adrian's recovery. You know, it got you to thinking like, well, Kelly, maybe we could do some of these things a little bit earlier in the recovery of other patients, which we maybe have not done, thinking that yeah, it's probably too early to start running a little bit, or it's maybe yeah. a little bit too early to start doing this. And so it's forced us to kind of expand our uh, our barriers, you know, yeah. move, them, move them down the road a little bit. And yeah. it, it's, uh, I mean, even anterior cruciate, even the, his operation. When mm -hmm. I first started doing these things, patients were in the hospital for five days after a ligament reconstruction. Well, that's not only an out, you know, outpatient now. I mean, you're up and walking. Yeah, you know, it's you're, amazing. You're, you're starting your recovery 24 hours later. Yeah, yeah. And, and the operation hasn't changed that much. Well, what's changed, you know? You know, yeah. it's, inter it's interesting. I, I have a just Peterson story too. Um, I uh, happened to be at an event where he was at, and uh, this is no disrespect to him, but it just talks about his physique. I just happened to look at him, and his lip muscles had muscles. I mean, was, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they're like this dude was like, wow. you know, like it was right. like, and I mean, I, I was awed. You know, not not you know, I was awed at, at how how muscular he was, and you know, and I'm I'm just looking at him, you know, just very casually, like, whoa, this guy is something unique. And so well, I say that with all due respect, but it was it, it was honestly what I thought at that time. His lip muscles got muscles. Well, I, you make a good <laughs> observation there, Clarence. You know, if you well, we probably all when we were young played. You know, divided up teams on skins and shirts. Yeah. You know, and you'd pick a team. Yeah. One of those guys that show up for the first time you ever saw him with his shirt off, you'd say, "I don't know him, but I'll take him." <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or better yet, I'm wearing my shirt because I don't want to be compared to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I have another another professional athlete story. So that, that was my second knee. My first knee, I'm in I'm in PT. And um, this is over at Fairview Riverside. And if you remember that, Dr. Fisher, you had done an arthroscopy for me at, at the Riverside Clinic. 
that was years ago. And um, anyway, so I went to PT there and who was there? Kirby Puckett. So Kirby, and, and for those of you who don't know, Kirby Puckett, you know, was a great baseball player on, on, the, uh, on the Minnesota Twins uh, for many years and unfortunately died young from a, uh, from a stroke. But at any rate, he had gotten hit in, by a baseball in the jaw and he, and he, and it broke his jaw and the whole nine yards. And so here I am, I'm, I'm doing my leg lifts up and down and up and down. He's literally sitting next to me, opening his jaw, open, close, open, close. <laughs> and we're just sitting there laughing, you know, <laughs> it was, it was a great, yeah. great moment. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm guessing he probably heals a little quicker than I did, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that. <laughs> so tell me, okay, so you were in practice for how many years altogether? Oh, close to, probably, rounded up to about 50, I suppose. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. So what's your biggest, you know, professionally, um, when you're dealing with orthopedic issues, what's your biggest takeaway? Well, you know, I, I have to, boy, when I think about something like this, you know, I have to think about both inventions and probably the law in that the computer changed all of our lives, but it really changed uh, medicine in that Things like the CAT scan and the MRI, yeah, they were they were known for years. I mean, the MRI was used in the 1940s in industry to to evaluate blocks of plastic for uh, impurities in blocks of plastic. The X-ray, which is the foundation of the CAT scan, you know, that was discovered in 1896 by yeah, Röntgen. Long time ago, yeah. And with the computer, it became possible to take the x-ray, to take the MRI, and apply it to, 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 to humans. It was possible to, to we, knew, we knew how to, how to do these things, but we couldn't handle the amount of data that was created. And so the computer changed that. And, and it, you know, the MRI and the CAT scan totally changed the face of of, of medicine, both of them. You know, in the case of the MRI, we could finally see under the skin. We could finally see the soft tissues, which yeah. we really didn't have any way of, of, of seeing them or seeing an injury to them. And then uh, the arthroscope came along, of course, in orthopedics and, and changed the face of medicine as well as orthopedics. So during my career, those inventions all happened. Yeah. and change, change the face of medicine. When I look at the law, I look at, I look at three federal acts. I, I don't want to get into too much of a discussion here. You know, but the Civil Rights Act in 1964, Title IX in 1972, and the American with Disabilities Act yeah. uh, after that, opened the door for people to be more active to to participate in 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 society uh, to a greater extent it made us all i think better people better doctors 
you know, I, I think it's slowly, slowly over generations beginning to, gen to, to generate a, a larger sense of community. And, and don't, I'm optimistic, but, but those yeah. are the things when I look back on 50 years that have happened in my lifetime, I think those are all things that happened that, that have changed not only my, my career, you know, my patients, uh, health, but my personal life, not to, yeah. not to, not to get into, into too much philosophy here, but, but they all go together. You know, yeah. you, you have to have meaningful work if you're going to have a meaningful life. And, and, and that's important for everybody. Yeah. You know, the show that we just put out last week, ironically was on uh, disabilities. So you might, you might be interested in hearing that. Yeah. Clarence, last thoughts. Dr. Fisher, thank you. I, I have, uh, it's, been a, it's been a very, very enjoyable conversation. And I think that what you've done for me has helped me to be able to talk more to my community and to people that I work with about this issue and, you know, to, to share more. Because I, I don't tell people that I had a, a knee replacement, you know, I, I might, but I think it's, it's important to talk about because I do know that people are struggling with this and the information that you've provided will be very helpful in terms of making it clearer and clarifying a lot of questions that, that I know that people that I work with or that I interface with have about this particular issue. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I, um, <clears throat> I, I see a lot of the um, physicians, you know, from uh, from TRIA who are doing, you know, knee replacements at uh, at Methodist because I'm at Methodist. I'm not at at at, at Hilton. And um, whenever I, I say, you know, they ask me who did your your surgery and I tell them Dr. Fisher and. Without a doubt, they everybody says the best, the absolute best. And um, for many of them, they've learned um, from at TRIA, the docs at, at TRIA learned many of their, um, their techniques and their uh, patient interactions um, from you. So um, the only thing I can, I can say is um, many, many thanks for uh, the care that you, you gave me um, over the years. And um, I have to say that you are definitely at the top of my list as a, as a trusted physician. So I, I, I greatly appreciated it. Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad Andrea isn't listening to this because she wouldn't want to talk to me for <laughs> for weeks right. after hearing this. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. said, get your, get your head back in the, in the room there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can share it with her. Okay, how's that? Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So to our listening audience, thanks for health chatting with us today. We've got great shows coming up. We have one coming up uh, tomorrow. Actually, we're recording with uh, on community health workers. We have one coming up on suicide rates, which are unfortunately increasing in, uh, in the state of Minnesota. And we're also seeing it nationwide and shows coming up on mental health. So stay tuned to all those shows. So keep health chatting away. Hi everyone, it's Matthew from Behind the Scenes. 
and I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running, helpchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there, you can interact with us, you can communicate with us, send us a message, you can comment on each episode, you can rate us, uh, and it's just another way for everyone to communicate with uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Help Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's helpchatterpodcast.com. Thank you.